So if you have your Bibles this morning, I want you to turn back to Proverbs chapter 25. Uh, as you know, over the last couple of weeks, we have been, uh, we've been uh, looking at uh, the first and second uh, verses in our three little verse section. We've been kind of coming through this and just looking at it in the sections that are kind of like natural sections so we don't miss anything and yet, uh, you know, we can break it down uh, to help you understand it. You know, we remember that week one, we talked about verse 14, 14, 15, and 16. We're going to be in 16 today. And uh, we talked about the spiritual gifts, you know, and under the verse of somebody boasting themselves of, of a false gift. Then last week, we looked at verse 15, I think one of the great keys to, uh, to your own personal life, uh, and that is the aspect of, of developing patience in our life under the concept of forbearing which is also called long-suffering in the Bible, the ability to suffer long. And, uh, you know, I, I talked to you how that so many times uh, that people liken that to a, a, some kind of spiritual gift that uh, you have the gift of patience and someone else doesn't. But we now know that that's not true. James chapter 1, verse 3 and 4 basically says that the trying of your faith, the things that we go through, um, you know, uh, work with patience. And it also talks about how that the trying of your faith and the patience working in you is a perfect work. It helps develop you. It helps you become more balanced in everything that uh, you do for the Lord. And, uh, you know, we talked about how that patience and forbearing is it's not a gift in any way, sense, sense or form. It's a, it's a character quality of Christ that we are told in Second Peter chapter 1, verse 5, that that we add these things to our, our faith. He talks about adding patience and then virtue and then knowledge and temperance and godliness and uh, brotherly kindness and then charity. And these are all things that I'm sadly saying that most of God's people today in the church of Jesus Christ don't even know what these mean. And, uh, <clears throat> you know, it's a, it's a thing where they're, they're key character qualities that Everybody that's saved as you grow, these are things that you add to your faith. They're things that as you grow up, uh, as we've talked about so much, into Him, becoming more like Christ every day of, of your life. And we know that they're almost in every area of our life, no matter what level it's on. <clears throat> it's going to require patience at some point. Everything. We goofed around with it last week, you know, about some stuff that was silly stuff, but you, you get the point. And uh, mainly I focused on three main areas last week that, that I think covers a, a lot of different scenarios. We talked about <clears throat> patience in our own personal life and our walk with God. And I gave you one of the great verses in the Bible, for me anyhow, Psalm 123, verses 1 and 2, that says, So our eyes wait upon the Lord, our God until he have mercy on us. It's a great verse. It's simply saying that when you, your patience comes from you waiting on the Lord with your eyes, you stay looking at the book, the promises, the Word of God, the things that he gave you, the principles. You stay focused on those, and that's how you wait on him. You wait by watching the principles and applying the promises that he has given you, knowing full well that in his time, he will bring it to pass. That's how you learn. That's how you learn patience. Then we talked about patience in the ministry, uh, whether you're uh, uh, building a church as a pastor or uh, you're, you know, you're involved uh, in a ministry with a pastor. 
uh, touching people's lives, allowing God uh, without any interference from us, letting God do His perfect work in our lives, to be impatient with that. Our learning what our job is and then understanding what he, His job is and being patient, doing what our job is, but allowing Him the freedom to do what He does and then, and then put it all together, never getting in a hurry, just you know, enjoying what God has given you here, not focusing on what you don't have. Look around you. Look at the blessings God has put in your life. Look at the things, the people, the places that God has done tremendous things with you. You've been a part of. You focus on that. You thank God every day for that. And you don't worry about what you don't have or who you don't have. Knowing that God will give you the desires in your heart and you just do your job and God will bring everything into your world that he wants you to have. Then the third one, we talked about patience in dealing with people in the ministry and how that will be a challenge. You know, people will be a challenge for you. Uh, you know, you're going to find that they don't always want to do what's right. You're going to find that uh, when they, you can invest in their lives and help them and do things for them and then, you know, because they're so unthankful and they're so uh, into themselves that uh, um, when they do have problems, they turn around and try to blame you for it. And you've all experienced that. And, uh, you know, uh, and, and I like for you to have to go through those things. I, I got to tell you, one of my greatest blessings uh, in my life in the church here is, is the people ministry. And, um, you know, it, not only for what it does uh, for others, uh, but what it does for you, uh, watching you respond to what's being taught and God developing you to do the work here together with me. There's, there's no greater blessing than that for me. I, me watching you get into the place in your life where you, you really make a difference in our church. You know, I've heard pastors, been around pastors all my life, and they always hate to lose people when people leave their church. They, they, they do, it's because to them it's always a numbers game. But I've learned over the years, building my ministry biblically as best I know how, the way I, I, I do, that, I, I, you know, again, you always focus on what you have. And so many times we, we, fret, over, uh, we fret over people who, in your church, don't make a difference. It doesn't matter whether they, they, they come or they don't. We've got people in our church that show up every six months, every three weeks. I love them every five weeks, every eight weeks, or whenever it's convenient for them, whenever they don't have something else going on. And I'm totally okay with that if that's what you want to be. But I'm not under the illusion that it matters whether you're here or not. The ones that it matter are the ones who you come here, you, you know what God has given us here, you grab the burden because you're trained and you're taught, you learn how to use what God has given you. And you, you make a difference, not only in this church, but you actually make a difference in people's lives. That's the key. You know, I, I, I learned that the hard way. I grew up in a church where, um, you know, in the era of churches, that uh, every Saturday morning uh, you went out to make to make visits. You visited people that came to your church. It wasn't enough that you had a bona fide 
Thursday night visitation where you went out and, and called on people that visited the church, that uh, the, they, they wanted you to go out on Saturday morning, take at least three or four hours and go out and, and really, they thought that that knocking on doors would rarely ensure that people would come to church because back in the day, all they wanted was a crowd. And you were required, you were required uh, to go out visiting on s Saturday morning. Now, you know, I, I, I hated it. I thought it was the stupidest thing on the planet, but, I, 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 but that's what was required, so that's what I did. I, I think that in all of the years, two or three years that I did that before I wised up, I, uh, you know, I had more doors slammed in my face. I'd go on a Saturday morning when a guy had worked all week and he's looking to have some time on Saturday morning to himself to watch television or do whatever he wanted to do. The last thing he wants is Reverend Bozo at the door. <laughs> trying to invite him to church. Every one of them, every one of them, God bless their souls, every one of them told me they would be there the next day. None of them ever came. I remember one time, and I, I, in my life I've had to learn things the hard way. I remember one time it was a January or February in Kansas City. It was slushy, icy, snowy. And I, I was struggling with, I, I, just, I just didn't like going up, and I knew I was bothering them. And I was smart enough to know that nobody was going to come to church based on this. So I go up there, you know, and I knock on the door, and uh, I've had him in there where they invite, I say, may I come in and talk with you? Yeah, come on. He's sitting there watching television. I'm talking. He turns the TV up. He doesn't even look at me. Well, on this particular, you know, and, and the and here's what you were told. This is, this is what we were told. Well, God will bless your efforts. So we went out doing that without any of our results, falsely believing that, that God, would, God would, uh, would just bless our efforts. And nobody ever came to church. And so I, I went to this guy's house, and it was down on Paseo someplace, and had those high steps you walked up. And, you know, I parked down front, went up, knocked on his door, and I said, hey, uh, Bob Alexander from uh, Pastor here, and I just wanted to, I see that you had come to church uh, nine years ago. And uh, <laughs> that's about the size of it. He said to me, look, I ain't coming to your church. I don't like your church. And I care even less that you're bothering me on Saturday morning and slammed the door. Well, okay. Does Jesus care? You know, I'm feeling sorry for myself. So I'm, I'm down there, you know, and I'm thinking. And I'm walking down the steps. And I'm getting ready to say, God will bless my efforts. And I stepped on a sheet of ice. <laughs> slipped up in the air. I mean... Houdini never elevated anybody higher than I was and come right down in the coldest, dirtiest, icy mud puddle you ever saw in your life. Now, I, 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 I'm, I'm not like Moses where Moses spake to God face to face like a man speaking to his brother, friend. I, that, I, me and God don't have those kind of things. I've only known God spoke to me maybe once or twice or three times, but this was one time that he did. 
And as clear as I'm standing here, I, I opened my eyes, and there was the angel of the Lord. And he had his hands crossed across his chest, looking down at me in the water. I thought he was going to help me up. And he said, do you really still think I'm going to bless your efforts? At that point, all the lights came on. I said to myself, this is stupid. I'm going to do something that I think is probably, I got it. I was a Saturday. The next Sunday morning, I had my Sunday school class, and I told, I told the people, next Saturday at, at 9 o'clock, I will be here, and I will take anybody through the Bible to help you learn how to minister the Word of God and learn the Bible that wants to be here. I didn't have a sign-up. The next Sunday, Saturday morning I showed up, there was 85 people there. That taught me one of the greatest lessons. I was busy all my life up to that point chasing people who didn't want to get caught. I was trying to talk to people who didn't want to listen. And I was out there under the false stupidity that God was going to bless my efforts when all of the time I had 80 or 90 people back there that were dying to learn the Bible. And that ended it for me. Uh, that ended it for me. I, I, and, and, and over the years, my ministry grew and everything because I was training people to reach people instead of going out and chasing people who cared nothing about any truth of, of, of the Word of God. And I, I, it's the greatest blessing in my life <clears throat> is to watch you and God take you. I mean, <clears throat> you're always going to have the whiners and the complainers. I mean, it just goes along. It's like potatoes. You're always going to have bugs in them. You go through and keep the good potatoes. I know, a bad analogy, but <clears throat> I really want McDonald's french fries right now, so I was just thinking about the potatoes that go along with it. But anyway... Uh, you know, it's a thing where you're always going to have that. It, it, it doesn't matter if it's this church or any other church. You talk to any pastor, you're going to have people who simply will never make a difference. If they really ever got saved, it's going to all be about them. It's what they want. They're never going to extend themselves to, uh, to give back anything that God has given to them. They're always going to, and, and when, they, when they go to church, wherever they go, it's going to be a thing where they could go for the rest of their lives and they'll never impact anything. And for me, to see the investment in your life pay off, watching you young men and young ladies, you know, to, to, to just do what you do. Gra Grandma, she's not here today, but Anna got saved in a Bible, or in a New Year's Eve Bible study, what, six years ago, something like that? Six, whatever it was. It's been not, not that long ago. And I'll tell you, she is my textbook girl. She has just done everything down by the book. And look where she's at today. And she makes an impact in this church. And yet, I can talk about Anna because she's not here, so don't tell her I said this. But I could say that about scores of you in here today the difference that you make. And the blessing is, I get to watch it. Most pastors, they fret over what they don't have. I never do that. I just rejoice over what I do have. And it's you and the difference that you make. And I get to watch it happen. There ain't nothing in this world better than that.
Nothing better than watching you grow up into him. There's something very special, as many of you know. There's something very special about the bond God forms between us, of us who minister together in this work. It knits us, it pulls us together. There's nothing like it. It's, it's the co-laboring together that builds a bond that nothing or nobody ever gets between that because you see and understand on a level that most of God's people never see. Now, now today, uh, we'll look at our third verse here in this little section, and we're going to add what we can learn today, and we're going to see uh, where it goes uh, and add it and tie it together over the last couple of weeks. Now, verse 16 says, it says, it starts out with a question. It says this, Hast thou found honey? Eat so much as is sufficient for thee, lest thou be filled therewith, and vomit it. All right, let's pray. Father, we thank you and praise you for the Lord Jesus. We, we ask your Father to open up our heart today to take these, this verse and, Lord, allow us to glean from it what you have for us. I thank you again for these great people in this church. Uh, Lord, almost without exception, even the young ones have a desire to learn and to grow. Lord, we, we, we don't have problem people here. They don't stay. We, they, they just, we, you just bring us the cream of the crop, the best that there is. And whatever level they're on, Father, they, they just want to do what the Word of God says. And, I, and I, it's such a blessing to me. And Lord, I thank you and praise you for this time. I thank you for uh, the, the older men and women that you've brought back into my world who have been with me forever, who understand and, and form a good foundation of this church. And then for the midliners who, who are well on their way and are invaluable. And then, Lord, all for the, for the new young ones that come in that are well on their way to grow and to become everything that God wants them to be. We thank you for that. We thank you for our church and for all that you've done for us and all that you've given us, way more than we deserve. And we'll thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. For our sake we ask it. Amen. Now, this verse breaks down into three simple concepts, so we're going to take it that way. We're going to follow the natural little idea that God's trying to put out here. And the first thing he says is, hast thou found honey? And that's a question. Now, let's look at this question for a few moments here, and, uh, and, uh, and I think it's a really, really good question. Now, we know from our previous studies, and this is not news to probably anybody here, we know from our past studies that honey or the honeycomb will always be a picture of, of the Word of God. In fact, um, if, uh, you know, you talk about uh, a spiritual diet and uh, we talk about eating spiritually, digesting uh, the Word of God. You know, in life, and this is so true in America anyhow, in, 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 in America, most people don't eat right. Uh, we've got too much garbage food out there, and, uh, you know, obesity is, is almost on an uh, epidemic scale in America. You hear about it all the time. Uh, little kids going to, going, to, going to school, you know, that, uh, uh, that just way overweight, unhealthy, you know, adults, their moms and their dads, and, and adults coming to the place where uh, it's, a, it's something that is a nationwide problem. And it's all because that they eat junk food. Uh, and, and hey, and I'm with you. I, I'm the biggest junk food. I was the biggest junk food junkie. I mean, there was nothing better than a King James Bible and a pack of Hostess Twinkies. I mean, that, that was everything you could want in life. I get it. And I'm telling you, most people today that in, in the world, in America anyhow, 
That's one of the things I was always impressed with in the third world countries. There wasn't a lot of obesity there. When you go to Central America, uh, you know, uh, in Guatemala or El Salvador or uh, some of those places down there, uh, you got guys that are, that are 60, 70 years old walking up the side of a mountain carrying a bundle of firewood that weighs 200 pounds. You got women uh, that are 60, 70. They're in John Knox Village up here. But down there, they're carrying, you know, a kid on their back. Plus, they, they, it's neat. They carry things on their head. And it's, they're, 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 they're much better shaped than we are because they don't have all the luxuries that we have. And it's a thing where most people in America don't eat right physically. But I want to tell you something. That carries over into the spiritual world. You got, you got in the physical world, you got a bunch of people who eat junk food. Well, you got a lot of God's people who are junk food Christian eaters too. They really are. And, uh, you know, they, they, they just... They don't have a balance in their life of, 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 of the Word of God. And, you know, God's got a, uh, to me, I, I, I got a message I preach on, on Christians, the Christian survival kit. You know, and uh, it's a thing where we're in the world and we've got to, we've already overcome when we got saved, but now we've got to survive. And uh, I think one of the reasons why I like the walking dead so much and follow it is because it reminds me of every day as a Christian. You're walking through a world where people uh, are dead in trespasses of sin, and the only thing they desire to eat is flesh. And they want to devour you if you give them a chance. So you need a survival kit against that. And so I have a message. I've never even preached it to you guys. I, I've talked about pieces of it, but I never really preached it. It's one of those ones that uh, you probably wouldn't like. It's boring. But anyway, it's a thing where uh, I, I liken the Christian survival kit. I tell them that the Bible, the Bible provides for you and for me a complete spiritually balanced diet. In John chapter 4, the Word of God is likened to water. In Hebrews chapter 5, verse 12, it's likened to meat strong doctrine. In Proverbs chapter 7, 2, and again in Song of Solomon chapter 2, it's likened to apples. In Luke chapter 4, verse 4, it's likened to bread. In 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 2, it's likened to milk. And in Psalms 78, 24, it's likened to vegetables. And in Psalms 119, verses 103, and many other places in the Bible, it's likened to honey. You have a complete diet, balanced spiritually there, of what the Word of God will give you, all the nutrients, all the protein, to balance you up, to grow you up. They used to say about Wonder Bread, builds bond, strong bodies 12 different ways. They had no clue that the bread they were talking about was a type of the Word of God, and the Word of God came from the Jews, the 12 tribes, so they had to tell you it would make you stronger 12 ways. They didn't know that. I knew that. That's why I don't eat whole wheat. I eat Jewish bread. I eat Wonder Bread. And that's why every time I preach, most people just sit there and wonder what I just said. <laughs> then, not only is it a perfect diet, but then it's a survival kit. Because you have to protect yourself from the walking dead. So therefore, the Bible's your sword. You have to build things. A shelter. So the Bible says in Romans 9 and Romans 11 that Christ is the, is the olive tree. Get your lumber from there. 
Bible says that the Bible over there in uh, Judges chapter 5, verse 26, the Word of God's like nails. And then in Jeremiah chapter 28, verse 29, the Bible's likened to a hammer. You got everything you need to eat and sustain yourself and then protect yourself and build something that you can live in. All a picture of the Word of God that you can survive this world system. But unfortunately, in spite of that, and that is so true, not true for most of you because you, you understand that, but unfortunately most of God's people will be content with living under a cardboard box under I-435, spiritually speaking. And they'll, they'll have the spiritual junk food all of their lives. You know, a lot of God's people remind me, you know, we have our homeless ministry, and you know that many of those homeless folks down there that you guys deal with, they have chosen to live that life. Now, I don't judge them one way or the other. And somebody says, what are you going down and feeding somebody down there who doesn't want to work? I don't, I, I'm not going down and feeding because he works or he doesn't work. I'm going down to feeding to give them the gospel so I can keep him out of hell. But I'm not entering into the illusion that most of the homeless people, not maybe most of them, but a lot of them, they chose that lifestyle. I talked to one guy one time. He says, I've been homeless for 25 years. I mean, that's qualified for them naming the bridge after you sleeping under. <laughs> and, 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 you know, and he was a nice guy. And he didn't want, some of them just want to escape any responsibility of, uh, of, of the reality of life. I get it. But I'm going to tell you something. You know, people criticize them all the time. And, but I, I'm coming to the conclusion that, that they're, uh, they're, they're not, uh, in a lot of ways, they're, they're not much unlike a lot of God's people. Because God's people don't want to do what they're supposed to do with what God gave them either. Where the homeless guy down there doesn't want a job, you as a child of God, you don't want a job. You don't want anything. You're content to live under a tree, live in a tent, live under a bridge, live under here, do this, and you're satisfied with never doing anything that's meaningful in life. In your case, it would be meaningful for God. And you just wait for us to come down around every week and give you a hot dog and a bottle of water. You say, how does that like me? Because you don't do anything for God. You just show up here that we can give you a spiritual hot dog and a little bit of water. And then you go back to your cardboard box. Not a whole lot of difference. There's some of God's people that just want to not do anything for God. I, I get that. I understand it. And as I said a couple, I think I preached on it either last week or the week before. You can't fix stupid. It is what it is. But on, in our text today, uh, we're going to talk about the Bible being honey in your life and how important that is to the overall growth process that you don't get to the place in your life where you get so full of the Bible that it makes you sick. You know, honey is a natural organic sweetener. Organic means that it's alive. Exactly like the Word of God is. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12 and 13 talks about the Bible being a living book. That is able, a book, a book is able to discern the thoughts and intents of the heart and manifest things in you. To discern is an attribute of something that's alive. The, the thing that sets the Bible apart from any other book on the planet is that they were written by men who are dead. Your book is written by a, a man who died and rose again, therefore making that book a living book. 
Years ago when we used to go street preaching back in Canton, I'd come to the place where, you know, they took me out and showed me the ropes. And we used to go down to the uh, uh, courthouse downtown. And every time I go back, I always drive by and look at that spot, you know, where we used to do it, where uh, these guys would do it. And we, they had all kinds of tricks. One of the guys had a big Mexican sombrero. And he laid on the ground and he put a Bible underneath of it. And then he'd stand there and people would walk by and he'd say, ma'am, look out, it's alive. Stand back, sir, it's alive. People would say, don't, don't touch that, it's alive, it's alive. Stand back, it's alive. Stand back, folks, it's alive. We'd get a crowd of 20, 30 people. We'd always wait for the cops to show up. Cop come up and he says, what's going on here? And he says, excuse me, officer, it's alive. He says, what's alive? He'd pick up the hat and say, the word of God. Then we preach to him. And then Mel come bails out of jail. <laughs> that Bible's alive. Amen. You better be careful with it. You say, I misplaced my Bible. No, you didn't. You laid it down exactly where you thought it was, and while you slept, it crawled around the room. <laughs> it's alive. It's alive. It's a living book. It manifests. It discerns in thoughts and intents. I'll tell you something else. Revelation chapter 10, verse 9 says that it's like honey, is when you eat it, it's sweet to your taste, but sometimes it's bitter in your stomach. You know why? Because it'll convict you about some things. You see, it's good right now. See, you're sitting here. Oh, that's, oh, it's, oh, that's good. Mm-hmm. That's, that's, and it is good. It's wonderful. It's wonderful. But as you think about it, and the Holy Spirit of God starts working inside you, deep down inside, it gets a little bitter. Right now you're saying, well, that, that's good. That's good. And the Holy Spirit of God says, well, what about this? Well, please, Lord, not right now. I'm really trying to soak up all the truth here. I know how it goes. And you just, you say, oh, that, how was church this morning? It was wonderful. Holy Spirit of God said, no, you didn't think that because there were some things in your life that I tried to point out to you and you blew me off. You see, we like it sweet going in, don't we? Yes, sir. But sometimes when we're not doing what's right, where we're not, it gets bitter down inside. Now, I'll tell you the answer to that. Find another church. No, I'm just kidding. I'll tell you the answer to that. Proverbs 27, 7. The full soul loatheth a honeycomb, but to the hungry soul, every bitter thing is sweet. There it is. Get to the place where it's all good for you. Get to the place where you like a good rear end kicking on Sunday morning. Get to the place that you come in here and you've got anticipation. You know, you get up and you're up there in the morning and you're saying, oh, I'm going to church today. Oh, yes. Uh, in fact, there's some things that I should have got right with God last night, but I didn't because I'm just saving them to go today because I want to get beat up on it. I want to hear what he says about it. So and you're just, and you're just, you're up there and you're singing in the shower, you know, and you're, you're brushing your teeth and you're mumbling hymns and, you know, and that thing. And you get here and you just walk in here and you say, hey, how are you? Oh, it's good to see you. Praise the Lord. I'm so glad to be here. I mean, you're just slobber with anticipation. And you sit down there, we open up the Bible, and you're sitting there, and your attitude is this. I really love the book. I really love it. But you know what? Let me have it today. Amen. Give it to me today. Rip me up. Throw me down. Back up. Run me over. Those tires aren't wide enough. Go get some big wide ones and run them over again. Back up and hit me one more time. That's, I mean, I mean, you know, you always can tell where the depth level of a Christian by how much they enjoy getting rebuked. Amen. Amen. And you get it a lot. <laughs> That's the mark. 
You know what? Because you know why? We understand. We know. We get it. We need to be rebuked. We know that God's not beating us up because he's mad at us. We know God's not beating up because he doesn't like us. God's people get the idea, you know, that when they do something wrong, you know, God's out to get them. He's not out to get you. He's already got you. And I've seen him fret all my life that, you know, oh, I've done something wrong. And, you know, I'm walking, here's God over here. Wait, you're going to, this is life. This is life here. And here's a wall here. And God's running the wall. And you come in and the guy says, ah. <laughs> Cancer. How it works. Or you're driving down the road in some car and you get in a car accident. Is that how he works? You're just a lousy driver. <laughs> Much like myself. You, it, it's a fact where God, you need to come to the place in our lives where we realize that when God drops the hammer, it's for our profit. Amen. He wants to perfect us. And you know as well as I do, we need it. That's all. You say, how do you get to that point? Just recognize you need to get a whipping every day. You know how good your kids would be if they come up and said, Mom, it's 8 o'clock, I'm getting ready to school. Would you whip me just in case you miss something today? You get this little dialer thing, you know, dialer prayer. Yeah, yeah, you, they got them out there. The maniacs got them, you know. You little dial prayer, you call them a number. And it says, this is the day. And it's the voice. The voice is so plastic. I don't think it's real. I think it's done by an android. It's so, there's no Christian that syrupy happy. Amen. I mean, this, and it's always a woman. This is the day the Lord hath made. Let us be glad and rejoice. You see, that's not reality. Amen. Let me make that tape. I'll say, this is the day the Lord hath made, and you're going to get it in the neck. That's reality. Then the atheists had to come up. They have a number you call, you know, and nobody answers. <laughs> Okay. <laughs> to the full soul. It loatheth the honeycomb. You get your soul so full of the things of the world. That when the word of God comes down the road, you want a church where everybody, they just tell you how nice you are. The biggest liars on this planet are the pastors who step in the pulpit and always tell you how nice you are. No, I'll tell you how nice you are. I'll tell you how special you are. But I don't have any problem telling how rotten we all are. The only reason why you are special is because you understand how rotten you really are. You love everything about the Bible, even the bitter things. Because there'll be times that you, you, you take it and it's honey in your mouth. But boy, when the Holy Spirit of God starts to work on you, it gets bitter. And honey will be the most nourishing of all the foods. I don't know if you know that or not. The only other thing that is on an equal par with it is olives, which is the fruit of the tree of life in the Bible. And honey is, has the essential ingredient dextrose, 
which is, is so important to man's health and, and balance in his health. But I, I got to tell you this. God has the natural honey that if we ate it, it would give us what we needed. But just like the dextrose that is found in the honey, man in a laboratory will produce a man-made substance called glucose that many times they'll try to replace the natural with to give you that because they, they think it's better. It's like God's given you a King James Bible, but the idiots in the Bible colleges want to have a man-made substance, the NIV or the ASV, to replace the natural honey that God gave you. Honey is a natural substance by which gives you energy and gives you strength. When I was in the Army, we were getting ready to graduate from basic. We had to do a PT test that was quite an enduring deal. And everybody was worried about it because if you didn't pass it, you know, you had to go back and go through again, and nobody wanted to do that. I mean, uh, we had all been marching around in the cadence saying, I don't know, but I believe I'll be home by Christmas Eve. Nobody didn't want to do that. And so I remember that morning, it was a cold, frosty morning. It was about a week before Christmas, and I was down Fort Campbell, Kentucky. And uh, uh, we had the PT test, and we were all milling around there, and the drill sergeant showed up, and he said, all right, line up. He says, I'm going to give you the surefire thing that's going to get you through this. He said, there's 28 obstacles. I figured it up last night. There's 28 obstacles. Each obstacle should take you no less than 20 seconds to, to do it. So you figure up 28 obstacles plus uh, you know, 20 seconds each. And he says, I forget what it was, you got to put out for like six minutes. That's all you got to do. Nobody ever thought of it like that. We were looking at it from obstacle to obstacle to obstacle. He said, it's only going to take you six minutes. Now, who can't do six minutes? Now, to ensure that, I got the most natural energy that you could have. And he had a big jar of honey. He says, I want everybody to take a spoonful of this honey right now. It'll get into your system, and it'll give you the energy you need to pass that test. And we did. Problem was, there's only one spoon for 200 guys. <laughs> Fighting soul. I mean, you're a, you're a soldier. You don't mind about that. Man, you're going to you know, eat rocks. You can take a spoon. Back then, they didn't have gay guys in the army. I was really thankful for that at that point. No, thanks. I'll do it on my own strength. I'm not going to eat that spoon. Here. How's that? No, thanks. You keep the spoon. Forget that. And it worked. I'm telling you, honey will give you, just like the Word of God, it'll give you the natural. It's a type of the Word of God. You remember our, a while back our study in 1 Samuel chapter 14, verse 23, where we talked about Saul, Jonathan, uh, and, and, and the people. How Saul had put them under an oath and told them they couldn't eat. Saul being a goofy pastor. And Jonathan found some honey. And, and Saul was blaming the defeat of, of his church on, on, the, on the unspirituality of the people. But the very guy who was supposed to lead them was telling them, don't eat the honey. It's like a pastor today saying, you don't really have the complete, absolute, perfect word of God. You just got a good translation. And then blaming their people because they never attained to any level of spirituality. That's Saul. What did Jonathan do? Jonathan got a little bit of honey. He saw a little bit of honey. He saw a little bit of honey. He saw a little bit of honey. 
saw a little bit of honey. And the Bible says that it enlightened him, opened up his eyes. And you know what he did? He saw where the real problem was. Honey's a type of the word of God. Hast thou found honey? <laughs> have thou found a honey? Have you? Do you have today the pure, perfect, natural honey of the complete word of God? Found in a King James 1611 authorized version. The honey out of the rock, Deuteronomy chapter 32, verse 13. And the rock of my salvation, Deuteronomy 32, uh, 15. And the Bible says in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 4, and that rock was Christ. Or do you have a man-made, synthetic, fabricated version of the Bible provided by man in a, in a laboratory someplace called a Bible college or a seminary that they think they're smarter than God? It's just that simple. You either have the pure Word of God that's a natural process from God or you have a man-made Bible from a scholarship that is, is, is a mess and it's synthetic. It's not the real deal and it won't give you anything. Now, if you found it, then the next two verses are going to be good for you. If you haven't found it, don't worry about it. Let's read in together and see what God has for us. Okay, here we go. Verse 16, hast thou found honey? Yes, we have the pure word of God. From God, preserved by God, and given to us by God. Um, I have an old sermon I used to preach on the Word of God. I, haven't, I, don't, I never preached it here, but I used to preach it all the time. And it was just a five-point outline about how we got our Bible. And I would use it when I would go to a church and do church history. I'd, sometimes I'd go in on a Sunday. I'd say Sunday morning, Sunday night, Monday night, Tuesday night, Wednesday night, and finish up Thursday night. And I'd bring them through uh, a church history. And I got a, I, we got it done. But the first sermon I always preached was, I was on the Word of God. Do you have it? And I preached, down through history, I preached, I based it on history, and I preached a little five-point outline. The first one was about the Word of God. And it says, and I used to preach that God thought it, the Bible. Then I would say the second point was the Holy Spirit of God brought it. Holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. The third principle was Jesus bought it. On the cross, he finished the complete Word of God by saying, it is finished. Then the fourth one would be dealing with church history where the devil fought it. And the fifth one was the greatest point, and that is in spite of the fact that God thought it and the Holy Spirit brought it and that Jesus bought it and the devil fought it, I got it. Amen. Do you have the Word of God today? That's the question. Well, if you do, here's what he says, the middle part of verse 16. Eat so much that is sufficient for thee, lest thou be filled therewith and vomit it. I love the King James Bible because it uses the word vomit. That's a, that's a base word. Nobody uses that today. It's upchuck. It's, it's regurgitate. It's uh, uh, spasmic, uh, spasmic, what did I hear? Spasmic convulsions. Yeah, that's a good one because that could go either way. But it, it's a thing where it, it's, a, it, 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 <laughs> it, 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 it's vomit. Now, there's two things here that I think are very important. It's hard for me maybe for most of you too, to wrap my head around getting sick on too much Bible. That seems to be an issue that just wouldn't happen. I mean, the Bible's everything to us. Amen. I tell you, it's your life. It's a, you spend the rest of your life in it. Now, here we got a verse that says, eat so much that it's a lest if you, it, you're going to get filled with it and it's going to make you sick. 
I mean, there's a lot of things in life that I would say that are bad for you to overdose on. Bible isn't one of them. From my perspective, let's see what he's saying here. And what he's saying to us is that we have to have a balance in the Bible. We can't just wade into the Bible and, 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 and fill ourselves up with it because it's going to be a negative effect on you if you do that. Proverbs 11.1, 1, we preached it when we came through verse 11 about 30 years ago, chapter 11. A false balance is abomination to the Lord, but a just weight is his delight. Balancing out the Word of God in your life, and yet putting the book in every aspect of your life. Well, seems like it's a contradiction. Balancing it out, don't get too much of it, but it's got to be in everything in your life. So let's look at this. Let's look at the second part. Eat so much as is sufficient for thee. We all have different needs when it comes to the Bible. There's no question about that because we're all on different levels as we grow. I learned a long time ago that uh, I've heard somebody say, well, he's an expert with the Bible. There are no experts with the Bible. Uh, that's, a, that's a fallacy that you might as well understand right now. There are no experts when it comes to the Bible. They're just students who are on different levels of learning. But there are no experts. There are none. Uh, we all have different needs in the Bible. And as you grow and as you, uh, you, know, you, you, you have these different needs, then the Bible will continually meet those needs by giving you what you need to be all sufficient for you. And that's what he's saying. Eat so much as is sufficient for thee. 2 Corinthians 3, 5 says, Not that we are sufficient of ourselves to think anything as of ourselves, but our sufficiency is of God. 2 Corinthians, uh, he says in 12, 9, he says, and, and he said unto me, My grace is sufficient for thee, and for my strength is made perfect in weakness. You see, you're perfected through the things that you go through, and in that, you get into the Word of God in a balanced format, and it is sufficient for you. 2 Corinthians 9, 8, And God is able to make all grace abound toward you, that ye always having all sufficiency in all things may abound to every good work. Then, you have to get the Bible on your level and you have to get as much as you need to be sufficient for you. And everybody is different. And this sufficiency will come by what you get on a continual basis from the Word of God uh, in, in, a, in a balanced relationship with the Bible. Getting God's balanced diet in your life and growing up on it continually, but keeping it in the balance. Now, the last part of that verse says, lest thou be filled therewith and vomit it. Now, the balance will not be how much time you spend reading the Bible, uh, though I do want to tell you there is a balance even in that. And the balance is, I've known a lot of people in my life that all they want to do is just digest the Bible. We have people on the Internet out there that, don't, that should be in church this morning here, and they're not. They're sitting home and listening to it because of the fact that they don't want to come to church for whatever reason. Now, if they're sick or work or out of town, I get that. No, I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about people who, uh, who are just, you know, they don't want to get involved in a church, but they like what we teach. And, you know, I'm just telling you, that is about as out of balance as you could possibly get. We are like sponges. 
And every woman who's ever mopped the kitchen floor or done, every guy who's ever washed his car knows exactly what I'm talking about. A sponge is an incredible thing. It'll soak up water and soak up water, but there comes a point where it won't soak up water anymore, and then you've got to go squeeze it out so you can soak some more in. That's exactly what you do when you get out of bounds with the Word of God. You can only, I'm taking to you guys now, you can only take so much in. You can only absorb so much. And if you're not in a church that is going to wring you out through ministry, you're just going to be like that, that big old sponge in that bucket just floating around and not doing nothing. Then you're out of balance. You, you, you got the mindset that, you know, well, I don't, for whatever reason, well, I'm not going to go be part of a church. I'm just going to learn the Bible. That is about as ridiculously stupid as I know what you could say. And I want to ask you something. See how that works for you at the judgment seat of Christ after God died for you and told you clearly not forsaking the assembling yourselves together as the manner of some is and saved you for ministry. Somebody says, well, what's your advice to somebody like that? I'd go on a diet and lose about 25, 35 pounds. Why would you do that? So when you stand at the judgment seat of Christ naked, you don't look too goofy. Because that's where you're headed. But in particular, it's talking about a natural balance that God has built into his honeycomb, the right balance when it comes to the Bible. And, you know, and here, here's the balance. Revelation chapter 3, verse 16 says that the Laodicean church is so out of balance that it even makes God sick. He spews that angel out of his mouth. Now, here's just, I'm just going to talk about three key balances here. And this will cover a lot. First of all, we talk about this all the time. This is not news to any of you, especially if you're in the Bible Institute or you're in the people ministry. You know that the first balance is that the Bible is written to three people groups. Matt, one of our guys on YouTube from not around here, he asked that question out of Luke chapter 16 Thursday night. It was a great question, Matt. And I showed you and told you how the Bible is written to Jews, the Bible is written to Gentiles, and the Bible is written to Christians. Your job and my job is to get the context down by knowing, first of all, who he's writing, what he's writing to. You have to get the right balance in these three areas. Who's he writing to? What's he saying to that person? This is where the charismatic movement gets all whacked out. This is where every heresy on the planet that somebody gets into the Bible and teaches it wrong is going to be based on the fact that they took something to the Jews and tried to put it to the church, took something to the church and tried to put it to the Jews, and tries to make it fit someplace where God never intended. Why? Because you're out of balance. And you fill your life up with that? You're going to have some problems. I'll tell you the second one. Bible says, study the show thyself approve, a workman unto God, but needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. There, you've got to get to some right divisions in that Bible. And the Bible will be divided around two kingdoms, Old Testament and the New Testament, the Jew and the church. We know it as the kingdom of heaven and the kingdom of God. There isn't ten churches in this city that would lay out the difference between those two. You know why? Because they're out of balance. They don't have a clue. And they think that the kingdom of God and the kingdom of heaven is the same. Say, how do you know they're different? Duh, they're not spelled the same. (laughs) 
The kingdom of heaven is the literal kingdom given to the nation of Israel, and everything to them goes around that kingdom. You find it defined in the book of Matthew, 52 times in Matthew, king of the Jews, kingdom of heaven, kingdom of God. Romans chapter 14, verse 17, Luke chapter 17, verse 21 tells you it's a spiritual kingdom. That's not meat nor drink. It isn't literal. It's within you. It's, it's, it's righteousness and peace in the Holy Ghost. It's within you. It's a spiritual kingdom. Paul, in his writings to the church, he wrote to seven churches. Not one time, not one time in writing to those seven churches did he ever mention the kingdom of heaven. You would think that somebody would catch that. And every heresy in the world today and every bad teaching from Baptist and an evangelical crowd will be found right here by not rightly dividing the word of truth. And that's where it goes. Not getting these right will put you a million miles off when it comes to the rest of the Bible. And you'll get filled up with stuff that is not good. You'll get filled up with bad teaching. You'll get filled up with heresy. And then you're going to have the problem because you're going to try to live a righteous life based on the error that you've been taught. The third one will be, uh, to me, the most vital, and that is understanding the Bible has three distinct applications to every chapter, to every book, to every verse. We, we talk about it all the time. The historical application, the doctrinal application, the inspirational. You know, we've talked about them a lot. Let me take a moment and show you how they really work together. Maybe it'll help you. Understanding that the Bible has three distinct applications to every chapter, every book, every verse. Now, we know the easiest one is the historical, or we would think that it would be. First of all, the Bible, first and foremost, is a history book. It, it's a record of the last 6,000 years of man's history, and then the coming of Christ, and then what's going to take place out into eternity. But you've got to rightly divide it to get it all cleaned out. Most people think the Bible is a history of book of what man and what man's doing. That's where your first mistake is. The Bible's not a history of book of what man's doing. The Bible's a history book about what God's doing in 6,000 years of indwelling and coming to this planet and doing what he's doing to establish his kingdom with man. The historical application will, uh, will, will mean that the events did actually happen, which many times are discounted today. Noah and Adam and Eve actually lived, actually happened, real people in history. I know most people don't believe it today. It doesn't change the fact that they were there. Noah in the flood, Genesis 6. Most people don't believe that there was a real flood. There was. It's an actual point of history. Sodom and Gomorrah. Genesis chapter 18 and 19. Most people uh, believe that's just a story and just a fable. It's not. It's true. David and Goliath. David and Goliath. Uh, most people just think it's a nice, cute little story, like Daniel and the lion's den. It actually happened. Look, oh, the crossing and the splitting of the Red Sea. Oh, wow. What a great thing that was. And man, Christians, or supposedly Christians, they'll spend their whole life in theological seminaries and this and that, telling young ministerial students that that's a fable, that's a mistranslation, that it's not really a miracle. They will spend all of their lives trying to take the miracles out of the Bible. Well, I'll tell you right now, I'll spend every moment of my life putting the miracles in. The guy said one time, he says, well, it really wasn't a red seed. That's a scribal error. 
it was the Sea of Reeds, which is at the south end of the Dead Sea, and it was only about six or seven inches of water. So see, there was really no miracle involved. There again, we find the scribes and the mistakes in your Bible. That's why you can't trust the Bible. have to trust me. There again, we see that how it wasn't really the miracle of God, uh, of God uh, splitting the Red Sea. They were at the Sea of Reeds. Somebody just left out an E and put in an A. They were in the Sea of Reeds, only about six or seven inches of water to this day. And so they went across that. I would be a little Bible believer in there, and I would raise my hand, and he would say, yes, Master Alexander. I would say, that's amazing. But you know what? It's still a great miracle. He'd say, what do you mean? All of Pharaoh's army drowned in six inches of water. <laughs> you can't get around the Bible. It was the Red Sea. Those things are historically true. <clears throat> and I, and I, I'll tell you something else. I think this is vital. <clears throat> when you look at the Bible as a history book, you find where God is putting his emphasis in history versus where man puts it in history. You'll go to college someplace and you'll hear about the Egyptian dynasties, Middle Eight Kingdoms. Uh, you'll, you'll hear about the great Kong, Genghis Kong, and the Chinese and, and the Japanese and their empires growing up and the Great Wall of China and all of that stuff. Uh, you'll, you'll, you'll read about the, you'll read about the uh, Babylonian Empire, the Hittite Empire, all of that stuff. You'll read about the Romans and the Greeks, how that the Greeks changed the world and the Romans conquered the world. You'll learn about Alexander the Great. You'll learn about Cyrus, king of Persia. You'll read about all those great kings. You'll read about the great battles, the great defeat, the battle of Phanopheli. You'll read about the great defeats of, of, of the ancient armies and how the, uh, the Colossus of Rhodes and all of the seven wonders of the world. You'll hear that all and all and all. And yet when you get to the Bible, you'll find that God's perspective, he didn't care about any of that. He didn't write two words about it. He showed you that his perspective had nothing to do with what the Gentiles were trying to do to overthrow his kingdom. His focus in a book, his book on history was about one thing, God's establishing his people for eternity. That's pretty impressive. He cared nothing about what was going on in the world. And then you have, that's the historical, then you have the doctrinal application. The doctrinal application will always point to the second coming of Christ or something in that arena, tribulation, millennium, something in that area. And uh, the doctrinal, uh, now the doctrinal application will be the second part, and it, will, it, it really is the most important. If the Bible is like an engine in your car, the spark plugs that make it run will be the doctrinal application. Because the doctrinal application forms for us the supernatural application of the Bible. Without the doctrine, it's just another book. It's like Will Grant's books on the history of civilization. It's like any other history book that everybody wrote. It's just a book. The thing that sets the Bible apart from any other book will be the doctrinal application, that something he says historically will have a prophetic impact 4,000 years down the road. And the key to following it and digging it out is just following God's systematic theology. I call them swing verses in the Bible. I'm going to show you just a couple real easy ones here. 
Take Noah in the flood, since we talked about that under the historical. Noah in the flood is a real event historically. Yet the swing verse tells us in Matthew chapter 24, verse 37, and Luke 17, 26, that it was in the days of Noah, so shall be in the coming of the Son of Man. See, that's a swing verse. It takes the historical application and swings it into the prophetic telling you that the story you got there historically has a prophetic application of something in the future. Then you get over to Isaiah chapter 54, verse 4, and it will tell you that Noah's flood at the time that he's on the ark has something to deal with the time that Israel is going through the tribulation. Those are swing verses. You got Lot, Sodom, and Gomorrah. We talked about that a few moments ago. And the swing first for that is Luke 17, 28. As it was in the days of Lot, so shall it be in the coming of the Son of Man. He shows you that a historical event, giving you a verse that will swing you into the prophetic and show you the doctrinal application of the future. Now, those are very simple. They come in a number of different flavors. That, that, that's a simple one. Those are simple ones. One is another simple one is the story of David and Goliath over there in 1 Samuel 17 and 18. You know, the story's absolutely true. There was a guy named Goliath who was a big giant, uh, and there was a little guy named David who was the uh, first real king of Israel after Saul. And there was a day when the giant went out, and he challenged the nation of Israel, and they all shook in their boots, and everybody was afraid, and David said, I'll go fight this guy. Now, here's the swing verses. In your Bible, there's 18 types of men who represent the Antichrist. Goliath is one of them. So now we mark him as a type of the Antichrist. There's 21 types of men in the Old Testament that, that show us Christ. David is one of those. Ah, so now we got a type of the Antichrist in the story and a type of Christ. If that wasn't all, here comes your swing verse. In 1 Samuel chapter 17, verse 34 through 36, David's talking about Goliath, and everybody's trying to talk him out of it. And David said, don't worry about it. You know, I was a shepherd boy, or I am a shepherd boy, and one night when I was watching the flock, a lion and a bear came out to steal some sheep out of my flock. I took both those lions and that bear on, and I killed them. And you know what? This Philistine's going to be just like one of them. Now, that's a swing verse. Because in Revelation, you already got that he's a type of the Antichrist. David's a type of Christ. He wrote a Revelation chapter 13, verse 2, talking about the Antichrist. It calls him a lion and a bear. See how it swings into it? Goliath gets killed in the head with a headshot. Just like the Antichrist is going to Revelation chapter 12 and 13, Psalm 74, 13. Those are swing verses. It, it, it works just like that. You, you find the the historical, then you look for the story and look for the verses that will swing you into the prophetic. Some of them are easier than others. But as you stick around, come to Institute, get into the people ministry, Thursday night Bible study, there isn't a time that I don't take the time to give you all the keys to those. You ought to have all of them almost by now if you've been around here four or five years. Then you have the inspirational application. And you get the inspirational application by understanding the doctoral and then looking at the parallels of history from the Old Testament to the New Testament, the time that you live in. So you look at parallel passages. Israel's God's son, Exodus chapter 4. Your God's son, John chapter 3, verse 16. So when you look at that and you see that you're both called God's son and you see what happens to them as a nation are pictures of what's going to happen to you as an individual. 
Then you get places like 1 Corinthians chapter 10 that tells you that the things that happened to the Old Testament to the nation of Israel through the parallels are your examples and your examples. So you just take from that and move it right over where you're at. And you see David and Goliath now. I mean, no, excuse me, Noah and the flood. Now it takes on an inspirational application. Noah overcame the world. The other day in the Bible Institute, or I think it was Bible Institute, I gave you the seven men in the Old Testament that shows you the seven absolute essentials for the victorious Christian life. And Noah was one of them. And Noah, what'd he do? He overcame the world. He was all by himself up against the world scenario, and he took God's side and he preached God's coming judgment to a world that didn't believe God's coming judgment, just like you ought to be doing. He stood alone. David and Goliath is a picture of the giants that are going to come up in your life. They wanted to defy God's people in the Old Testament and stop them. The giants in your life want to come up to stop you from being and doing what God wants you to do. Now, you know how the story goes. It's a beautiful picture. I don't have time to lay it all out. David's going to go out to fight him. Pastor Saul, who's an idiot stick pastor, like most of them today, wants to have David go out and fight Goliath in his armor, Saul's armor. Now, the Bible says that Saul's probably seven foot, you know, 200, 300 pounds. He's the biggest guy in the kingdom. David's about 16, 17 years old, looks like a scrawny little runt. And he tries to put his armor on him to go out and fight this giant. Well, that's a great picture inspirationally. You know why? I'll tell you why. Because in this church, you can't go out and fight the giants in your life in my armor. You can't fight him with the armor who's discipling you. We may be there for a while, but we're here to get you get your own armor. And when David went out, he says, I've not proved these. I can't fight in them. You can't fight the world, the flesh, and the devil in somebody else's armor because you've got to prove your own armor. And then it comes to find out that he didn't need any armor. He had a slingshot. And he went down and picked up a stone. Five smooth stones. I've had pastors talk about the fact that he picked up five smooth stones because he was, uh, that's a lack of faith on David's part because if he missed him with the first one, he had four no. You're out of your mind. You don't know your Bible. He picked up five smooth stones because the Bible says Goliath had four brothers. And if they wanted to make this a family affair, he was going to go five for five. And he let that thing go, and it hit him right where the helmet of salvation should have been, and it took him down. And the Bible says that you and I, our rock, our rock is the Lord Jesus Christ. That's all the, that's all the armor you need. And I'm telling you, those are the inspirational pictures of those things. Saul wanted to go out in his armor. David says, I don't need your armor. I'm coming out to you in the name of the Lord. What are you going out to face the world with tomorrow? Your own armor or the name of the Lord? You see, my job here, our job here is to armor you up, get you geared up. You can live on my spirituality or the person that's discipling you for only so long. And then you've got to develop your own because you can't go. You can't fight that battle in somebody else's armor. You've got to have your own. So you see this hundreds of times in the Bible. And they form a good balance in the Bible. 
that you getting the doctrinal, the historical, the doctrinal and the inspirational in time. I know, I know many of you are in a process right now where you're learning those things. I get it. Many of you are already there where you got a great handle on it. I get it. You got to get your sufficiency on whatever level you're on. But you got to develop it to the place where you get the balance of the Word of God in your life as your daily diet. And you have the, and this is where you learn it. You don't learn in a church that doesn't preach the Bible or tells you how nice you are or gives you whatever you want. You learn it in a place that'll give you the truth of God but holds you accountable to it. And you then have all sufficiency. Learning to make the Bible work for you. A working knowledge of the Word of God. Not just having it, but having a balance with it. That the Word of God actually does in your life the work that God intended it to. And with that balance, you must rightly divide it up. You've got to get it laid out. And when you do that, then you will have the Bible, uh, the depth and the balance and all sufficiency. I mean, historical is very important. I get it. And it's good. Inspirational is good. But what makes the Bible alive will be the supernatural aspect of God taking something in history and then catapulting it into the future, showing you the connection between the two. And it brings up the greatest single truth about life, God, the Bible, and man is simply this. History will always repeat itself. And the only thing that men never learn from history is they never learn anything from history. So they continue to make the mistakes in history. It's true of our country, and brother, it's certainly true of churches and God's people. In the Bible Institute this year, this is our third year. The first year and the second year, we talked about structure. We laid foundations. We got your key concepts that you had to learn and understand to fundamentally begin that balancing out the Bible. Now, this year, we went to work on the doctrinal side of things. We took God's natural honeycomb of his systematic theology, and I've showed you very clearly how that God will take through the doctrinal teachings of the Bible, God will give you sound doctrine and a sound balance by creating through the doctrines, line upon line, a safety net that you will not fall through into heresy. And you'll note, I'll say it again, every Bible study, every Sunday morning, wherever we're in the Bible together, whether it's my Bible study up in Lincoln or it's my Bible study here or wherever it's at, I'm always laying out those things so you can make them, mark them down and get them. And hopefully after 5, 10, 15 years of me doing it over and over and over again, you'll get most of them. Most of God's people will be completely out of bounds when it comes to the Bible. I've met God's people that have great inspirational truth but they have no doctrine. There's no depth to them. Then you find the ones that all they know how many warts the Antichrist got on his rear end. They know all of the great deep things of the Bible. They know all the doctrinal things, but their personal relationship with Jesus Christ is in the tank. They have no relationship with him. You're going to find a lot of people like that because when you have a doctrinal, all you do is do the doctrinal, you don't have to have any accountability because the accountability in your life will not come from the deep things of the Bible. The accountability in your life will come from the things that you put in your life building your personal relationship with Christ that will keep you accountable through the church that God gave you. Then you have those who big on history but nothing else in the Bible. And without doctrine to make 
the history come alive, without doctrine to give you the, the, the fire to bring it over. It's just a message. And this is why most pastors are so absolutely boring to listen to. It's why most Baptist preachers always preach the same sermon or about the same thing, getting people saved every Sunday. Have to give an invitation. Wherever they start, wherever they go, they wind up coming back because that's all they've got. They have no balance when it comes to the book. So they just hit the same old stuff every week over and over again. Preaching shallow material to you. And, and, and you know, and, and it just doesn't work. Preaching should motivate you to get into the Bible. Preaching should light a fire under you that the Bible is the greatest book this world has ever seen. And if you don't get in it the right way at the right place, you can get on the diet with the other folks. My life growing up, boy, I, I count myself so lucky, man. I got to hear some of the great, great, great preachers before they passed away. Boy, I saw the guys, and I tell you, guys like Roar Thompson from the Cleveland Baptist Temple. Victor Sears and his brother Howard Sears from Greenville, South Carolina. Obviously, Dr. Ruckman from the years at camp and Mel Sabaka from my life. But John Rawlings from Landmark Baptist Church in Cincinnati, Ohio. R.G. Lee, the great orator from the South. B.R. Lakin. I mean, Bob Jones, Jr. I mean, a man that I didn't care much about his belief in the Bible, but I won't tell you something. He had a command of the English language that was unfathomable. And I remember how I watched and I listened when they would come to Canton Baptist Temple. I, would ha- I, I, I was like Samuel. I'd let none of my, their words fall to the ground. I watched them. I watched them weave the doctrinal, the inspirational, and the historical together through a sermon. I watched how they manipulated the crowd and brought them through and, and laid this out and then watched the swings verses as they moved into this and then brought the parallels into that. hanging on to every word. An hour of their preaching seemed like it was five minutes to me. Couldn't get enough. I came away from every service with a hundred things I needed to put in my Bible. And I would come away saying, oh, to be able to sit down with the Bible and do what they do. Oh, to, to have someday in my life the ability to be able to look at that book and see what they see and explain it the way they explain it. I'll tell you what, I don't know what good preaching does for you, but back in those days, it motivated me toward the Word of God. And I wanted it so bad, I didn't care what I had to do. The balance was of no importance. It didn't matter what it took. If they told me to sit on my head in a corner eight hours a day, that's exactly where you'd find me. I wanted that book because those guys and their preaching, those men and what they did, those men and how they laid it out, I saw it. I understood it. They had something that I wanted. Their preaching was a driving force for me to get, uh, to get into that book and to learn how to lay it out historically, doctrine, inspirationally. But not this modern day watered down milk toast preaching, if it's even that. Not this teaching and talking about all of the goofy stuff that will motivate nobody. Not the lame, wishy-washy, lethargic, no power, no drive, no motivation preaching that we find today. Just a guy standing up 
who keeps on talking when there's nothing left to say a long time ago. When you're getting the Bible that is on the level of God giving you the sufficiency for you, when you love the honeycomb, when you realize that even the bitter things are sweet to you, when you want that book so desperately that you'll do whatever you got to do and you'll put whatever out of you got to get, I mean, a lot of God's people, they'll never get out of the Bible. I think of Moses. Moses, back there in, in the Old Testament, you know, when he first met God, God gave him everything that God wanted him to do out of a burning bush. When Moses came down from that burning bush, you could see the fire of God in his face. You could see him coming down off that mountain. And I learned a long time ago, if you want to digest the Word of God and you want to get the Word of God, then you better hang out at the burning bush. Unfortunately, most God's people hang out with Anheuser Bush. Never get to the one God has for them. When you're getting the Bible on that level, you'll get the sufficiency that you need. You'll never get full of it. Because it's the unsearchable riches. They'll never come to a place in your life where what you're getting fills you up to the point you don't want anymore. Because you're going to see it's the only book in the world that's an eternal book. It's the only book in the world that's a live book. It's the only book in the world where every other book that every man ever wrote, it all had a purpose, but it didn't drive you to the point because it was not a supernatural book. You got the Word of God in your lap this morning. It was by God to you, down to you, that has everything in it that God has in His mind. And it's alive. It's not the problem that God books alive. It's the problem God's people are dead. And a dead man never could understand life because he's dead. See, that's what happens when you get out of balance. And don't let the Bible work in you the way God wanted it to be. There's a plan that God systematically built into your Bible that he wants you to learn it. And I'm going to tell you right now, a lot of God's people, a lot of men, a lot of women, they get their own ideas how they're going to learn the Bible. And you know what? It's simply that, their idea. And they go through their whole life and they never, never accomplish anything with God. They have the questions, they have the doubts, but they just won't discipline themselves to get what they need to get the way they need to get it for it to be all sufficiency. And it comes down to one concept, accountability. Will you make yourself accountable to a book? You say, well, I make myself accountable to God. God doesn't want your accountability to Him. God wants your accountability to the system that God put into play in the church age. The New Testament local church and the book, because that's the only way God's going to work. When it came down to Israel's accountability to God, it wasn't they gave accountability to Him. He gave them a structure of a nation by which they had to be accountable to a law. And in that accountability, then they were accountable to God. You think that, you say that, and I hear that all the time. You do that because you really don't want accountability on God's terms. You want it on your terms. There'll be no accountability without the Word of God impacting your life the way God wanted it to impact you, not your little flimsy way of having the best of both worlds. What a great passage. Hast thou found honey? Have you? Then eat so much as sufficient for thee. Get what you need on whatever level you are. 
but get the right balance. Get into the church. Get there somebody to help you who understands it. Get it yourself. Throw away your goofy ideas. Throw away your stupid concepts. Start from day one and begin to build it back the way God wants it to be. Eat so much as is sufficient for thee.